Have you ever wondered where truly great scientists find their inspiration? Thanks for joining us for this episode of Lessons from Lab and Life. I'm your host, Lydia Morrison, and I hope that our podcast offers you some new perspective. Today's lesson is in finding and maintaining inspiration. I'm joined by Chris Noren, Scientific Director of the Chemical Biology Division at NEB, and Angela Belcher, Professor of Biological Engineering at the Koch Institute of MIT. Today, we're going to be discussing finding inspiration in perhaps the most unlikely of places. I am Christopher Noren. I'm the Scientific Director for Chemical Biology at New England Biolabs. And today, I am ecstatic to be joined by the James Mason Crafts Professor of Biological Engineering and Material Science at MIT, Angela Belcher. Angie has spent her career at the interface of molecular biology and material science, specifically the use of filamentous bacteriophage as a template for material deposition. Angie, um, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Chris. It's, uh, it's great to be on this podcast, and it's great to have you in my lab. The very first time we met in person, um, you gave me an abalone shell. So the question is, how did abalone shells inspire your research? Well, I've been interested in how biology makes materials, like hard materials, like calcium carbonate and uh, calcium phosphate and iron, uh, iron oxide-based materials, because nature, um, through um, a very long t- evolutionary time period, learn how to make inorganic materials um, at the nanoscale under ocean conditions and ocean pressures and didn't use toxic materials. And to me, that was, that was fascinating. I actually did my PhD on how abalones grow shells. Um, they actually use proteins to nucleate and control the crystal structure. They grow the metastable crystal structure, which is the beautiful um, mother-of-pearl-like structure, and they grow calcite, which is the thermodynamically most favored structure, uh, and they do that as kind of a quick way of growing calcium carbonate. And they can switch back and forth between it. And it's all controlled by proteins, which means it's controlled, you know, at the genetic level. And so I've always thought that life did a great job of making um, inorganic materials, hard materials, but could have had more opportunity, could have used more elements and made more kinds of materials just besides the handful of materials they made. And so my goal um, when I was finishing graduate school and when I was a postdoc was, wow, how do you get biology to make more technologically important materials like semiconductor materials? When I was finishing um, graduate school and when I was in a postdoc, it was kind of the explosion of, of, of nanoscience. So uh, nano, just like it is today, was becoming more and more important because people were realizing to get to the next generation electronic devices, we were going to have to shrink the electronic structures. Well, biology already makes interesting materials at the nanoscale. They just don't make interesting electronic and optical materials at the nanoscale. So my goal was to make materials like an abalone makes calcium carbonate or shell, but have an animal or organism or biology make electronics. So you told me that first time we met that your approach to recapitulating the construction of complex materials on a biological template is based on glancing through the New England Biolabs catalog. So can you tell us how that inspired the projects going on in your lab? So I had heard about this idea of of phage display. I'd read some papers on it. But I thought there's, you know, being a, a solid-state inorganic chemist, it's going to be really hard to, to make a library, a phage display library. Um, and about that same time, I was flipping through the NEB catalog, and uh, phage display libraries were, uh, were available. Uh, you could buy them. I didn't have to make one, uh, which would have, you know, taken all my time to figure out how to make one. At the time, we were interested in gallium arsenide, uh, in indium gallium arsenide. And I remember we were talking back and forth 
with tech um, with tech services, and we're like, okay, well, we have this single crystal gallium arsenide, uh, and it's in a uh, Eppendorf tube. And what we want to do is, we want to bind the the phage to the single crystal semiconductor and elude it off. And so we were going back and forth talking to you about about uh, how to how to approach that. So I think we used gallium arsenide. We used um, iron oxide, and uh, we tried maybe indium phosphide materials at the time. Tell us about the airplane wings. So we um, we started working in batteries. Um, that was really our first applica- device application we started working in in the lab because we, if, you know, first we started using phase display to discriminate and bind uh, materials. And then we started using phase display to start growing materials. So we started playing around with that. We started making all kinds of materials. We started making uh, column two, column six semiconductor materials like uh, zinc sulfide, cat sulfide, uh, selenide-based materials. Um, we started making metals. We made fuel cells, actually kind of record-breaking fuel cells out of, out of phage. And we started making battery electrode materials because battery electrode materials like lithium-ion batteries, um, one of the things that um, is allowing them to, to get better and your phones to get uh, smaller and such is nanostructuring these materials because nanostructuring the anode and cathode materials of lithium-ion batteries allows uh, favorable kinetics for uh, energy storage. And so you think about the beautiful phage as being you know, only 880 nanometers in length and you know, 10, 10 nanometers or so in diameter, now you can grow a lot of really small nanoparticles on that structure that are strung together as a linear string. And now you can make, you know, millions or billions of those. And so we started using those for battery electrodes. I think we started working on uh, anode materials first um, and published a pretty high-impact article on that. And then we started um, making cathode materials and published some high-impact articles in, in cathode materials then we started making films and foams out of these because remember that they're monodispersed. And so if you, we made liquid crystals out of them, we got high impact journal uh, articles out of that, but you can actually make kind of random foams of these materials that are, go towards aerogels, meaning that they're mostly, but then space, you can put a smaller amount of templated uh, inorganic materials on them. And so then we started making them into shapes. And so now we can make them into shapes like, um, like uh, airplane wing shapes. And we started uh, a project where we're trying to double the distance or the, the time that a, um, an unmanned vehicle or a drone can fly based on what we call structural batteries. So it's, in this case, the battery is part of the structure of the drone. And so it's not like you have a drone and then you clip in the battery. In this case, the um, wing of the drone is the battery. And the wing of the drone is also a virus-based battery. And so that's a, a, an area that we're working on. Another thing that we worked on on phage were, at one point that relates to, to airplanes, uh, is that we used phage to find defects in airplane engine blocks as well. And the idea there was that at defects, you're going to have a, uh, a change in the chemical structure. You'll have more oxide uh, at the surface or more dangling bonds. And so a phage should be able to see the difference between a collection of dangling bonds and a perfect structure, and we showed that as well. So working at the interfaces, um, I've spent some time at interfaces myself. Do you find that there's a certain amount of issues with communication? Do you actually have to evangelize your position at the interface? Because so many people like to be in the middle of the discipline rather than around the edges like we are. So I do. So I think that now it is becoming much more acceptable to do that. 
and I have um, you know faced a lot of uh, scrutiny in the in the past. Every time I try to go into a new field, I, I find pushback, and and I think it's you know I, I never say I want to be the world's expert in, in X. I basically say, is there something in our approach or toolkit that can help solve this problem? And you know, I, my um, PhD advisor said to me when I was a graduate student who wasn't sure I was tough enough to be a professor because I took things pretty personally. My first grant proposal I wrote as a, as a young professor was on using phage display to um, find a DNA sequence, a coder for a protein sequence for Gallimar snipe and Indium Gallimar snipe and such. And the review came back that I'm insane. And it says she is an insane exclamation point. That was the only thing on the, on the, uh, on my review, uh, and it was quite crushing. You, know? you showed them. Yeah, I did show them. Um, but now be, being, you know, having insane ideas are great, right? Um, but you have to have sane ideas that are somewhat grounded in reality. And I felt completely comfortable that our ideas were grounded in reality because organisms had done it already. Exactly. But just not with these materials. Now, yeah, Galen Marshine ended up being the wrong material to choose, ultimately, or not the best material to choose, but we went through the, systematically through the periodic table, and I did a report recently, which I think we've made 150, maybe more than 150 uh, materials that are phage-based materials that, that phage have, well, obviously phage have never genetically coded for these materials before, but biology has never coded for them. And so, I mean, I have pushback, but I think that, like any person, you have to, you know, pick yourself up and dust yourself off and, and move forward. Not everything has been successful, but not everything's going to be successful. I think, you know, keeping your eye on the big picture, what you want to do. Um, a lot of things that students get really excited about, it's the new direction we come into in the lab. It's the students say, oh, I really want to work on this particular topic. We've never worked on it before, and we'll sit down, and we'll, we'll sketch it out. We'll say, okay, we can see an avenue of getting there, and then we'll approach it. Can you tell us about any other you know, besides abalone shells and the BioLabs catalog, <laughs> um, any other blue sky sources of scientific inspiration? So, I mean, to me, um, I mean, I tell my kids this, that, uh, you know, I hope you meet many people that love science as much as me, but you'll probably never meet anyone that loves science more than me because I just love it. I love everything about it. I love proteins and I love molecules and I like thinking about how they, they interact. And it's, it's, you know, it's such a joy to be able to do this for a living. Think about molecules, um, build structures, solve problems that, you know, it's, it just fills, fills my day. And so we're constantly thinking about what are the uh, most pressing problems on the planet because my, my group is focused on what are the most pressing problems on the planet. And so we organize around, uh, around themes, energy, the environment, healthcare, water, um, are, are some of the, the major topics that my, my group works on. And so then also, just like you're flipping through um, – through, you know, journals, we're always doing the same thing to try to understand what are the limitations to solving, you know, things around batteries, around solar cells, around water purification, around finding small structures. And we kind of, we kind of delve in, we jump in and say, well, what are the limits to the, the current technology? And then the question we ask, well, does biology have a way of getting around that? Uh, because biology obviously is, is really good at solving problems and getting around issues. Usually it takes, you know, millions and millions of years um, but using uh, phage display and basically the technologies that we've developed in my lab around growing these kinds of materials, we try to see if, if we can have a biological solution to that. 
And she has two small children, and obviously you're trying to get them interested in science. But, um, <laughs> but how did you become interested mm. in science? I was I was very young when I got when I got interested in in science, and neither of my my parents were were scientists. But I had this idea from a young age that I wanted to do something important, and I thought about two things. One, I, first thing I wanted to be was an inventor. But I didn't have any good ideas, and I grew up in in Houston, um, Houston and San Antonio, and it's it's really hot there. And I'd go in the summers, and I'd say, "I'm not going to leave the garage until I invent something new." And I, you know, I'd be in there sweating and everything, and I'd be like, you know, six or seven or eight, and I never really came up with any, you know, great ideas. But but I I thought invention is something that is important. And then I thought after that I thought, well, medicine that's something that's important. So maybe um, maybe I'll be a doctor. And so. I was also um, lucky as a as a young teenager and a teenager to live in Houston near the medical center, and I got to go to you know visit the hospitals and hang out in the libraries in the medical schools, um, and I started studying, you know, what I could figure out about about medicine. But what I really realized is I loved molecules, and I was interested. I got interested in genetics um, when I was you know thirteen, fourteen years old, and I thought, wow, that's so interesting. You know, how do you go from you know DNA to to a person and so yeah I started thinking I was going to be a, a doctor but by the time I was um, in my first and second year in college um, I loved molecules so much that that I knew I wanted to um, go in that direction you know now you think you can be a doctor and love molecules but you know I think I loved molecules more than the idea of being a being a doctor and so then I, I pursued um, a study which was design your own major uh, and I did a, a major that was, you know, chemistry, biology, physics, geology, because I was interested in the origin of life. My first degree is in creative studies, um, which is basically design your own major. And because I was interested in so many topics, I didn't want to specialize. And I got really interested. And this is so related to phage display. So it was like it was like written on the stars from the you know time I was a kid. But I, I was interested in how did how did we get from the first small molecules to larger replicating molecules and then cells and humans and everything else and I remember reading um, about well it probably happened at interfaces it, it probably happened at the interface between you know rocks at the ocean shores and that was uh, you know sil uh, silica based structures and and clays and you know maybe carbonates and so I was thinking wow it's the interface between rocks and small molecules and organic molecules that led to, to life and now everything I do is the interface between you know, proteins and, uh, and, and rocks, basically. Uh, well, speaking of interfaces, you just dovetailed very nicely into my next question. All of your science seems to be at unexpected interfaces uh, of disciplines, such as between molecular biology and material science, uh, rather than falling squarely within a single discipline. So what is it about you personally that enables you to think so far outside of the box? Well, I think that I feel uh, really, it was my undergraduate degree in creative studies, which basically allowed me to study, put any fields together that I wanted. And so I feel really, really lucky, and I try to uh, emphasize this with my children as well, is what's important is to find out what you love and then do that. And I've been very fortunate that my whole career, I've, I've only studied what I, I love to do. And then for my, my PhD, I work between Galen Stuckey, who is a materials chemist, uh, Dan Morris, who's a molecular biologist, biochemist, and Paul Hansema, who was a physicist, and I worked between the three of them. And I think that was actually instrumental in, in learning to think about a problem from multi, multiple disciplines. Because if you think about an abalone, an abalone doesn't say, 
uh, I'm going to build a shell like a physicist would, or I'm going to, you know, it basically it's, it, it takes different disciplines together and works together to build the best shell it can. And that's what I'm interested in doing. I mean, ultimately I'm an engineer, so I want to solve problems. And I don't really as much care how I get to the problem as long as it, you know, is economic, as long as it's environmentally friendly and, and things like that. But I just want to solve problems. And so I basically use what's in the toolkit to solve the problems. And then it goes back to, you know, relating to the, the problems that, that of the world that I'm interested in. But a lot of it's student-driven. And so here I am talking about, oh, you know, we do this, we do this. Of course, I'm a professor, so I don't do anything. And so when uh, the first couple of tech calls, uh, that was me. Um, but, you know, since then, you know, my students do, you know, I haven't done an experiment myself in 15 years. This is a two-part question. The first part is, what advice would you give to a scientist at the beginning of their career? And then as a follow-up, what advice would you give to a scientist at the middle of their career? So for undergraduate, the advice that I give students um, when they're, you know, trying to decide their, their major or, or, you know, classes to take are to, to study what you're very excited about. And so I think that's, that's the, the, the most important, is to find something that you're, that you're really passionate about. And the other thing I give um, people at that stage is, even though I didn't follow this myself, hmm, is I think it's really good to pick a, a major and become an expert in it. Uh, you know, at the at the undergraduate level, you can add on you know double majors, you can add on minors. But people say, you know, what if I do a little bit of this and a little bit of this? I, I, I think you should become an expert. You know, become an expert in chemistry or biology or mechanical engineering. You know, pick an area, become an expert, and then add on to it. The, the other thing I say is for, for graduate school, it's the opportunity to make a pivot. And so, okay, now I, I become an expert in chemistry or, or biology or you know, any of geology, any of those topics. Add something else on that you think is interesting and become an expert in that. I, I think instead of t you know, picking and choosing you know, a little bit of depth in everything, which is what we, I kind of do now, but I have a very deep under, underlying knowledge in a couple of fields. And then as you add on, it gets easier to learn. It gets easier to see the connection between those. And so... That's that's what I say, and then I think postdoc. If you do a postdoc, uh, again, it's this time to to really take a kind of an extreme pivot, uh, because now you have all this expertise that that you've spent years cultivating, and now you can really go outside your comfort zone and add another another field to it. And you know, I think times are different than when I went to to school, and um, and the world is different and everything. But I really think that if you can, you know, find something, and I tell this too graduate students you know graduate schools graduate schools has ups and downs you want to have more ups and you have downs so um, pick something that you really love and that you're really passionate about because you have to have that to keep you going to keep the big idea because there's going to be days when experiments do not work it's going to be days when classes are hard and when you and you get rejected and when you get rejected but if you get keeping getting rejected on something you don't love you know that makes it really hard so you're going to have ups and downs, so try to have more ups than, than you do downs. And like I said, I feel like the most fortunate person in the world um, because I get to study what I'm very interested in. Okay, so what advice would you have for someone in their 40s who's been doing science for 20-some years? I think that, that it's, you know, keep adding new things to the mix. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a really focused person, a really unfocused person at the same time. I've always kept my expertise focused around organic and organic interfaces, but I keep adding different fields. Like we added cancer to the mix, you know, uh, six or seven years ago in my group where I had to learn everything from, from the beginning. 
Um, you know, of course, I have really smart students who um, and great colleagues who help uh, teach it to me. But but I don't get bored because there's always something new to think about. And I'm the kind of person who loves to think and learn all the time. And people say, don't you feel uncomfortable when, you know, you walk in and, and you're you know not even not the smartest person in the room. You may be the least knowledgeable person in the room. I said, that's a great starting point because all you have to do is go up. You can't go down, right? Exactly. And so, um, I, you know, I'd say that to keep adding new fields and learning and, and thinking about new interfaces. Now, that being said, mid-career is tough just in general because um, funding gets much tougher in, in mid-career. And so I'm not trying to make light out of that. But I, I do think it's important to keep fundamentally grounded in what you're interested in and what your expertise is, but then look around and see um, what are the new directions that are being funded in science and um, and what is your expertise that you could have that helps pull you in a, direct, a new direction you're interested in, and it might be a direction that has, you know, new area of funding. And then everything that we've ever done in my group has been a collaboration. Mm-hmm. And so working with, with other people that you, you really like, collaboration of the, of the graduate students, I think, I think um, working with students keeps you young. <laughs> uh, be- that as well. I like working with freshmen, sophomores too, because um, they still think anything's anything's possible. You know, they're in that that upswing. Um, they're so dewy eyed. It's like if you can. I have all these mini preps. Oh, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's super fun, right? Exactly. But then I think working with students keeps you young, keeps you motivated, um, and it keeps you on the edge of of technology because the you know the grad students that I get coming in today. What they had as an undergraduate in their biology classes was completely different than what uh, what we had in our biology classes, exactly. and the, and they they're always pushing me outside my comfort zone, uh, and so I think that's I think that's great. Okay, well, thank you very much for joining us today, Angie, and thanks for fitting us into uh, your busy schedule. And here's to many more years of working with beautiful M13 bacteriophage and doing interesting and fascinating things with it. Well, thank you so much for, for having me and for coming to visit my lab and for helping me prove that my initial idea was not insane. If you enjoyed today's episode, please tune in for our next episode in which NEB scientist Becky Cusera will examine the lessons she has learned from Carrie Mullis and the advent of PCR. PCR.